all of a sudden you realize the value of fame is worth more than money. And so now that currency takes over. I just sold my company for $140 million and I don't give a fuck what the future of cable is. <laughs> What's happening is to the Gen Z and Gen X generation, to them, a reality show is Instagram, you know, is TikTok. Hi, and welcome to the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Today's guest, dun, 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 three Emmys. The producer and creator of some of the most familiar shows you would have been watching on the TV over the course of the last 20 years. Maybe Ice Road Truckers, Deadliest Catch, to name a few rings and bells. Tom Beers is a seriously successful TV producer and creator. And he's going to come and share his stories about what's happened to him over the years, how he comes up with the ideas behind these incredibly successful TV shows, and how, if you really wanted to get into the television space, you could do so too. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. First of all, Tom, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. You, um, you're quite a character. Everything I've consumed about you and learned about you kind of fits into so many parts of my life. Uh, my wife is a, is a crazy junk TV addict and I can't bear watching that kind of stuff. You know? And I need to watch documentaries. I need to watch stuff that's real life. And Deadliest Catch was one of those shows that really got me in. And Ice Road Truckers and many along the way too. But it's like wanting to know about people's real lives, how they deal with real issues. But for me, after going through the process of making a television program, and even today's interview with Lord Archer, what I learned is, where does this creativity come from? Yeah, it's like how, how, where, where, how do you know? I'm like, how do you write thirty books? And I'm now with you. How, how many TV shows have you done? Uh, over two hundred. So where does the creativity come from on your part? When I was a kid, I loved television. I mean, I was absolutely. I mean, I was that kid that got up every Saturday morning and I just would and and, and watch TV. I watch cartoons and I'd watch, you know. Uh, Commander Cody and the, the 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 space team, you know, there's like astronauts and cowboys and Lone Ranger. I mean, I just there's, there's something about that world. I just I, I just couldn't get enough of. Fortunately for me, also my parents were both actors. Uh, they were stage actors, uh, and so I, I watched them. And I, as a young at a young age, I became a stage actor as well. So it was a long process, to be really honest with you. I I got into the the theater that I, I majored in theater, and I, I was an actor in New York for many years. Uh, I studied. I worked for a, a guy named Lee Strasberg, who was a great acting teacher. Cut everyone from everyone from Marilyn Monroe to Marlon Brando to Hoffman and Pacino and De Niro. Uh, and so I, I was fortunate enough to study with him and work for him. And then I, I realized, as an actor, the last play I did as an actor, uh, it was a play called Linen Clean and White, and uh, Fr Frank Rich, who was a critic at the New York Times wrote of my performance and he said even though the character dies in the second act there was no cause for the director to cast a corpse in the role <laughs> <laughs> so 
when that when that review came out, I realized that I really probably wasn't cut out to be an actor. But I love the process of acting. I love the process of storytelling. Then I was broke and I needed to get some work and some friends of mine were in TV commercials. And so I started to work in TV commercials as a production assistant. Uh, and then I worked my way up over a couple of three years, became a a, a serious producer. I produced over 100 TV commercials, everything from Ford to McDonald's. Uh, and then I started to set my sights, where am I going next? Am I going to go in the scripted world? So I started to work in the scripted world. And I realized very quickly that I did not have the patience or the tolerance for ego. Um, and so I realized that I did not want to work in, in the the in, in 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 scripted because all even the union guys and everybody had a job and it was all very and I wanted to do everything and so I, I started to bother a guy named Ted Turner who owned Turner Broadcasting and Turner uh, after three years everything I did if I, I directed a play or I wrote a play I'd send him reviews I'd send him whatever I could and finally three years later he called me up and said you know son you you've been bothering me long enough I said you want to come work for me and I said yeah hell yeah so he gave me a job uh, working in his nonfiction group. Uh, and that's how I got started. So I got started working, making documentaries, and I and literally for 10 years I traveled the world. I lived with the Kayapo Indians in the Amazon, the Yanomami. Uh, I filmed in 21 countries in Africa. I eventually worked my way up. I became the executive producer of for Turner of uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I did, and also National Geographic Explorer. So I worked with all this natural history and got a chance again to to live the world and travel the world. So all that is just background for me. So when I, and, and I studied, you know, to be honest, as, a, uh, as an executive, you know, you're, you don't really work the creative side, but you, you work the other side of your brain, the business side. So, I mean, I was, I was insane at watching the numbers, the ratings, the quarter hours, watching flow, trying to understand, you know, why shows work, why they didn't, what were the character arcs, what were the story. And because of my background in theater, I understood it a lot better than most nonfiction people. And when they got to doing these one-hour docs, and, and instead of just doing these kind of, you know, like just, oh, let's look at this, it was really about characters and story. That's when my stuff blossomed because I really had that background from the theater. Uh, and so my stuff looked really different. And Deadliest Catch, and uh, it was kind of the first big male soap opera that was ever produced in the United States so, yeah. or in the world. As you as you mentioned that, it's quite interesting because I'm just thinking about my relationship with the, that show in particular. So it starts off being really a show about these guys that are going out in a very dangerous environment out in the Bering Sea for a certain period of time in the year and, you know, risking their lives to catch crabs for restaurants, basically. Yeah. But, but then it becomes about the people. And, you know, we, we've all got our favorite boat, you know, and we've all got our favorite crew. And, you know, some of us like Stig and some of us like don't and some of us like Phil and all that kind of stuff. We have our favorites and was the time bandit your boat? And you could talk about that. But then, you know, and, and the struggles that each of those families went through, that, that became the soap opera, yeah? Yeah. Once you brought them in, you know, you had to get them in. And if you look at my shows, one of the things I realized early also is, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I mean, my, my shows are very male-driven. Uh, my audience is about 60 to 65% male. So it's 40 to 35 to 40% female. Uh, and, but it's, the target audience is really males. And so what do men like? Men like, they, they don't like soap operas. They ain't going to watch that. But what they do like are sporting events. And I realized very quickly that if I put 
a score in every one of my shows at the end, who won, who lost. Guys get that. So in essence, so at the crab count at the end, yeah. it was really important because you wanted to hang out. You wanted to say, okay, ah, these guys won. They got more crab this week. So it's literally, we're very simple, you know. I mean, we, we like tough jobs in exotic locations, high risk, high reward, you know, and and basically a, a score. So those are that's the formula uh, that I kind of developed over the years. Uh, and again, I, I got that because as an executive at Turner Broadcasting, I could see what worked and what didn't work and why it worked and what the flow was. So I took that time to really educate myself before I kind of stepped into it. I look at some of those those series, and I think that people didn't even know those jobs existed. Oh, yeah, no. Like Storage Wars. <laughs> I mean, really. I didn't even know that was a real thing. You know, I didn't either. I'll tell you, that one came about very, very differently. Uh, storage Wars, I, I used to see the, the trucks, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK yeah. on the side of these We trucks. have it here. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I, and I called the CEO of the company one day, and I said, look, do you mind if I put a... I just want to put a film crew on one of your trucks for a week. I don't know what you guys do, but I'm trying to figure out what my next show is, my next B show. And Steve said, sure. So we got on it, and I'm looking at the footage that comes in. It's like, geez, it's just these guys that are, there's just a lot of hoarders and a lot of just real junk, and it's like nothing there. But three times that week, a truck showed up at a, uh, at a storage place, and they were emptying out the storage and throwing all the stuff up. And I said to the producer, what is that? He said, I don't know, they got the, these weird auctions, and they sell the stuff when you don't pay your bill. I'm like, what? So I started to go, uh, and I went for two months. Nobody knew who I was, and I went, and I started bidding on stuff, and I started watching all these people and watching the interplay and how organic that was. And at the end, I went, okay, guys, you know, I'm, I want to make a TV show, and I want you, 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 and you. And I actually cast it. They didn't have a clue that I was I was Tom Beers, the producer. I was just a guy that was bidding against him. So I could actually, so it was such an organic thing because all those guys really hated each other. I mean, I remember the first Christmas party, I put them together, you know, big celebration. I, I, I got um, Brandy and Jared. I had Jared hits Dave Hester over the head with a bottle. You know, it was like, Merry Christmas, boom. You know, I was like, okay, so that, I mean, really organic. And But the brilliance of that one was, again, it was a treasure hunt. You know, if you think about it, you just, you have to bid on stuff. You have no idea what's in the boxes. What's in the boxes? And I learned that, and then it's a very funny story. A girlfriend of mine named Russ Kagan, when I was at Turner, came to me one day selling me a show on submarine, a, a German submarine during World War II that was in Stockholm, that was basically left the port with these 10 black, huge boxes. They loaded them onto the submarine, and the submarine went off, and it disappeared, and it sunk, and they never found it. He told a story that went on for about a half an hour, about all this. And all I'm thinking in my head is finally when his lips stopped moving, all I wanted to say was, dude, what's in the boxes? And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, ratings. <laughs> and that's what happened to me when I saw that. I looked at all those boxes and I remember Russ Kagan saying, that. I'm like, what's in those boxes? Ratings. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so people are, are very familiar with these these types of shows now you know they've been on our tv for a long time and you know other ones similar porn stars is one that's had many years of existence now for good or bad reasons but they have their legion of fans don't they of people that su support and follow these types of shows and you know cars seem to have been very popular as well on car shows and you've done those too well i created the first one monster garage but let me go back to something you know you said pawn stars 
Um, you know, I had that show, Storage Wars. I had that thing locked and loaded at the same time Pawn Stars was just starting production. And I took the show to Nancy Dubuque, who was running the History Channel at the time. And I said, Nancy, you got to look at this sizzle. And she looked and said, God, I love it. She said, but, I, you know, look, do me a favor. I got this other show that's going into production. Let me see how it does. If it does good, we'll just green light yours. So she puts the show. It goes on the air. Boom, pops the number. Nancy, let's go. She goes, Tom, you know, I got this other little show. It's called American Pickers. You know, I, I, I don't know if I got room for three. So she parked me for a year. And I was not happy about this. So I made one phone call, and I called Sharon Levy over at uh, Spike at the time. And I said, Sharon, I'm sending you a tape. And she said, I sent it over to her. She said, storage wars. I take it. I want it. An hour later, I get a call from Rob Chernow, who was at the time running A&E, which is a sister network of History Channel. Nancy Dubuque had walked the tape across the hall to Rob Chernow and said, Rob, this is a great show. I can't put it on my air. I got two shows, but you got to put this on the air. It's great. So Rob calls me and he says, Tom. And I said, Rob, I'm sorry. And I was pretty upset about these guys anyway, that they'd park me. So I'm like, and I had paid for the whole thing. I said, you know, Rob, I appreciate that, but I just sold the show to Spike. And Rob very calmly said to me, he said, Tom, let me tell you a story. I love this guy too. And he's such a mild mannered, lovely guy. He said, Tom, someday I'm going to run both A&E and the History Channel. And if you don't give me this show, you will never work for me again. And I'll kill your fucking children. <laughs> I am not kidding you. It was kind of, I mean, of course it was a joke, but I mean, that's how serious he was. So I sat down. Now I got a dilemma because I just sold the show back to Spike. And these guys, have, and I'm thinking, you know what? Give it to the guy who will kill your children because that's someone that you got to take really serious and really believes in what you're doing. And so I had to give it, I gave it back to him. And I gave uh, Sharon Levy a couple of other shows, including Cole, and in exchange for her giving back to that. But I, I'll never forget that. That you know, and that's the thing when you're playing this this broadcast game, people don't realize that you know there are all sorts of subterfuge and things going on that you just have no control over. Tell, tell me what you what you think about reality TV and its existence today, because we've got we've got these types of shows, but we obviously the famous Kardashians, but there's all these Housewives of this and you know, selling bling or bling this and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Million-dollar listing. Million-dollar listing yeah. and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And how, how do you look at that? How do you... Well, I look, you know, look, that, this is seriously not my audience, as you know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very female-dominated audience. Uh, and it, it, there's a place for it. I think it's, uh, it's aspirational, you know, people all want. But it's such a, it's driven by consumer. You know, if you think about it, there's not a real lot of, whole lot of goodwill in any of that. My stuff that I did, it was all about guys would be doing exactly what they're doing with or without the cameras there and making a living, you know? And I thought that that was, there was some integrity to that. Um, the challenge you have with shows like these other shows that you talk about, uh, and it's not the producer's fault a lot of times, it's the fact that the budgets have been crushed so badly by obviously the, 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 uh, the fragmentation of the market uh, that they can't afford, like in Deadliest Catch, I shoot 800 to one, you know? I mean, I get 800 hours for every hour that goes on the air. I mean, they're deck cameras and all sorts of things. You film yeah. 800 hours to produce a one hour episode. Yeah, but 90% of that are cameras that are locked on the deck in case something happens. So you just kind of okay. throw it away, but we still- 800 man hours, 800 film hours. Uh, film hours. The editors right. must love you. 
Yeah, they do. But you know, when you time lock and you know what you're smart, you know exactly where to go, so you don't have to scan through a lot of this material. But anyway, but those guys, I mean, they're literally their budgets are probably they're eight to one, you know. So they've got to produce it. You know, I can't sit around and wait for them to say this or wait. Let's let's just do it. You know. So I think it's the show. The, the shows lose their integrity. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's you know, it's a public service for whatever reason people need to kill time. Um, I do believe, though, what's really interesting, if you if I think that when you look at the evolution of media itself and entertainment, if you look at the Gen X and Gen Z's uh, today, they're consuming more media than we did uh, there. I think they're up to about eight and a half or nine hours to 10 hours of media, nine and a half hours a day now. We consumed eight hours, but when you bifurcate, when you look at our eight hours of consumption, I don't know about you, but 10 years ago, I remember I'd get up in the morning, I'd turn on Fox News, and it'd be on in the background for an hour, you know, and look at it once in a while. Then I'd read Variety, you know, I'd read my Hollywood Reporter, this is 15 years, I'm dating myself. I'd read the newspapers, New York Times, LA Times, uh, London Times, I'd read everything and consume. Then I'd get in my car, and I'd drive, and I'd listen to a radio, and then I go to work and I do my work and I come home at night, listen to the radio again. Then I turn the TV on work and watch Prime from 8 to 11 or 8 to 12, whatever. Today, my change, not only disease, my habits have changed. I don't do any of that. I get up in the morning. I look at my social media stuff. I look at my pages. I look at Facebook. I look at Instagram. Uh, I look at TikTok. How old are you? I'm 72. 72 and you're just watching TikTok. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So all of the people that are listening to this and watching this right now, see, people are on TikTok. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's great entertainment. But all I'm saying is, so the kids, and to me, I think my genre, particularly uh, those men's soap operas, I think that I know that networks have stopped even ordering them. What's happening is to uh, the Gen Z and Gen X generation, uh, to them, a reality show is is Instagram. You know, is is uh, is TikTok is, and, but their Instagram particularly, they've created their own tribes. So what's happening is, it's not that they're in the old days. You say, oh, they're going to watch their my TV show on their phone. You know, it doesn't matter what the delivery system is; they're going to watch my media. That's not what's happening. You know, they've changed the focus of media of, of entertainment has changed completely. They're creating their own forms of entertainment. You know, and to them, gaming is is spent more time on gaming than they are. I mean, they never read a newspaper. They don't read a magazine. They don't care about any of that stuff. They don't even listen to commercial radio, you know. So all that stuff, all those mediums are going away. You know, and if you look at the bigger picture, the high arts, my God, if you look at, you know, where's where's the opera going? You know, where's the where's the ballet going? Where's the symphony going? Those things are like hat boxes sitting on a stack and they're ready to drop off a cliff. Because the, the last, the next eighty-year-old that dro drops dead, you know that that medium is dead. So, but at the same time, what I find exciting is the fact that there's new forms of entertainment. Now, it's hard to commercialize it. It's hard to monetize it. You know, the delivery systems are monetizing it, but that's about all. You know, so again, the economic models change. You know, so it's like wow. I mean, to me, I love it. It's fresh, new, original. Watching all this other stuff, particularly user-generated content, is great stuff. You know, but I, 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 I feel bad for, you know, the art films, you know, the stuff that in the old days, I mean, people really would love to do and, and love to watch, you know, because I think that those, there's just not very much of a big space for them these days. So we'll stay on the business of it. Obviously, Mr. Beast, 
Yeah, yeah. In recent times, they've been talking about the value of his channel. Mm -hmm. and he was offered a billion dollars and he turned it down. It and uh, he also lives in a dormitory. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. Yeah, I know about that as well. Yeah. But he's like, he's, he's seven days a week doing his thing and, you know, loving it. But they're talking now that it's three, four, five, six, seven billion potentially the value of his channel and uh, the content that he produces. And I look at that and I'm like, okay, is that, is that the, is that the real, real, because at the, 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 the end of the day, whether you want to become a reality TV show, whether you're making documentaries, producing them, executive producing them, you're not doing it for your health. Okay, you, you're in business, and and as much as you, you know your passion is your business, it's still business. You wouldn't do it for free unless you had enough money to be able to do it. Which is exactly what I'm doing now. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm actually making films now because I, I can afford to do them. And I don't need a job. But yeah, but you have to assume, you know, you have to get yeah. So the monetization, you know, is really the 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 big challenge now. How do you make a living doing, you know, doing this? Now, what I find fascinating also is if you look at the the media dollars, you know, 50% of all media dollars have disappeared from television, traditional uh, media. Uh, and those, that 50% has gone to influencers, you know, and they're in basically, again, they're getting these little slices of pie, these micro slices of pie. But to them, making 50,000 bucks, you know, which is the cost of, you know, what, four TV commercials on cable, you know, uh, in one day, that pays their their year's life. You know, they, I think, again, it, I, I look at it and go, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the, it's a battle right there between kind of need and greed because you've got on the one side, you've got the Kardashians and you've got the billion dollar listings and all that kind of real, you know, it's just consumerism and it's worse, Shit. you know, and then you've got, you know, people that basically say, look, I'll, I'll work my ass off and be happy making $50,000 a year, you know, and I'll live in my parents' home or I'll basically start to. So I think, I think that balance and, and I, I kind of like the way it's leaning. Look, it, it, it I'll tell you a very quick, funny story, and it's kind of, it's a little arrogant, but at the same time, I think it, it's very poignant. About eight years ago, I was at a panel, a big panel uh, of media executives at a big conference. And um, at the end of the, the, the question always is, what's the future of cable? And I remember the, the other five gave these really just salient, just absolutely nailed it. They had answered the question 100%. At the time, I had just sold my company. And so when it came to me, I, I said, what's the future of cable and television? You know, I said, to be honest with you, I just sold my company for $140 million and I don't give a fuck what the future of cable is, <laughs> you know? And to be really honest, I meant it because it doesn't matter, you know? What the future of, of all that media is, is the consumer will decide. It's not us. We sit around and pontificate, but that's not the case. You know, I remember a kid telling me once, I said, how do you find in all this miasma, how do you find any content that you like? And he said, well, to be honest with you, if it's really good, it'll find me. <laughs> you know? So no matter what you do, whatever you throw at the wall, you know, it's catching lightning in a bottle. And particularly today, you know, I think it's really gotten more and more difficult. But I do find it interesting the way it's going. It's not my model and it sure is not to support the people that, you know, that, that came up with me. You know, but at the same time, that's where it's going. Let's be real. There's a certain young lady by the name of J Lo. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Tell me the story of J Lo. What with me? Yeah. Well, I to be really honest, I mean, I don't really have much of a relationship with her. I just was excited. I, I became the CEO of, of Fremantle. I sold my company to Fremantle, and four years later, uh, I, I was leaving. My contract was done. I was out the door, but there was some 
big management shifts at Fremantle, and they asked me if I would run the U.S. division of Fremantle, Fremantle North America, which is the largest production company and one of the largest in the world. You know, we're doing half a billion dollars worth of production a year. And so, you know, I like, God, I jumped at the thought, the chance. I thought, my God, you know, this is kind of cool. I do my stuff, but I've always wanted to, you know, to, to ride the big shows. Uh, but I do remember, and by the way, I remember my wife asked me the same question. She said, Tom, why, why are you taking this job? You got all the money. Where you got everything? I said, well, it, it would look great on the resume. And I remember looking at me like, it, with this look on stuff, what, what do you need a resume for? You know, <laughs> but in my mind, I was still like, I'm still cooking here, baby. Yeah. But anyway, so I get, so I show up at, uh, it, again, Fremantle does American Idol, America's Got Talent. They did X Factor at the time. We do big game shows, Celebrity Family Feud, you know, they, just a, a lot of content, great content. And uh, so I'm now I'm running Amer American Idol. And so I'm up there, and I know Seacrest for years. Ryan and I have, you know, have been friends. And so I'm standing up on the, the dais when, you know, the, where all the, the judges are and Simon. And I know Simon. I've never met J-Lo. And all of a sudden, they're putting makeup on her. And she's talking, and she kind of looks up at me, and she goes, um, and you are? <laughs> One of those? And, and thank God, my publicist, the publicist was there. She said, he's the guy that signs your paycheck. And she said, oh, well, hello, Mr. Paycheck. <laughs> and that's it. Never bothered to learn my name. So really? and I became Mr. Paycheck. And then Howard Stern started calling me that too. So that, that was my name, yeah, Mr. Paycheck. Oh. Now, you work with the, with the, the Women's Network. And, oh, geez. And, and working with the Women's Network, they asked you to produce something that I believe then became more, uh, more consumed by men than it was women. You, you've certainly done your homework. Yeah, I, um, years ago, I, I was asked by... Um, uh, uh, Gina, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name right now, but anyway, G uh, she asked me, she had worked at Discovery for years, and she um, had taken a job as a head of programming for women's entertainment. So when uh, she went over, she called me and said, look, Tom, I, I want you to do what you've done for Discovery and for History and A&E and Nat Geo for years. Make me a show that has that kind of energy to it, but for women. I thought, you know, I gotta give this a shot. I'm so excited. So I find this two women that um, that go through Tornado Alley, which is kind of Texas and Oklahoma, in the middle of tornado season, and they call themselves Twister Sisters, and they take tourists through tornadoes in a in a van, in a van, yeah, yeah. in a tour van. Um, but I thought, okay, great. Now I'm going to cast this right. So I found a a priest who had lost his faith. I found a, an artist, a musician. Who had kind of lost his muse. I thought all this great stuff with feminine energy would really kind of, you know, that would, would push the show. And I thought I did a great job. The show was really, really good. Um, and it went on the air. And women's entertainment at the time, they didn't get any overnights. I mean, to them, they came by a, you know, Pony Express about 10 days later, they got ratings. So I got a call from Gina McCarthy at the time. And she called me and she said, uh, Tom, I got good news and bad news. Okay, what's the good news? Well, the good news is that you drew more males to women's entertainment than any show in the history of the network. Yeah, okay, what's the bad news? The bad news is that no women came. I mean, even on women's entertainment, I drew like a million males to women's entertainment and no women. It was really, it was incredibly disappointing because I, I actually thought I had nailed it. There's something that I think is quite fascinating about you. And when, when I learned about it, I didn't believe it to be true. 
Did you direct your own heart attack? I produced it. Yeah, I did. You produced your own heart attack. Well, well, in more ways than one, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so just explain what happened. I um, was working on a... It's a very funny story, actually. I I had just won an Emmy for Deadliest Catch. And I remember that because I was going to Florida from Los Angeles and there's another side story to that, uh, to do, I'm um, shooting a, a, a pilot with Dick Wolf. And so, first of all, I'm getting on the airplane and I'm talking to my dad. And my dad lives in Florida. He says, when are you coming? He says, well, when are we going to see you? I said, well, I said, I'm getting on the plane. He said, well, we're going to shoot the pilot this afternoon and we're going to start and then, you know, tell him all the story. I sit in my airplane on my seat and about 10 minutes later, two security cops come on the plane and they ask me to get off the plane. I take my bag with me. I get off the plane, and the guy said, "Sir, I'm sorry, but we think that somebody overheard you say that you were going to shoot the pilot." It's not oh. something that you say when you're getting on an airplane. Yeah, yeah. I never even dawned on me. I'm like, "Yeah, we're shooting this," and then I'm like, "Oh, that's certainly not something you want to say when you're getting on a plane." It really happened. So I'm like, gonna, at the time, I'm like, "Ooh, a little stunned." But if, the reason I bring it up is that I had my Emmy that I had just won. My, my, my uncle, had, he's opening a restaurant in Florida, and he asked me to bring the Emmy with me. So I got it in my backpack. So I actually literally open up, and I pull out an Emmy. See, see I'm a TV guy. That's, I shoot pilots all the time. I literally had the Emmy in my hand. So they're like, <laughs> okay, okay. And they looked me up and said, okay, fine. But it's like, whoa, that was like a really scary moment. Wow. But so no, I got this Emmy in my pocket because I'm going to bring it down to my uncle's restaurant opening before I go over to the East to St. Augustine to work with Dick Wolf and shooting this pilot. So I got this, the Emmy with me, and I'm down, and the restaurant opens. My family's all there, and they're like, hey, Tom, how are you? Where's the Emmy? And it's, that's all. I mean, yeah, I yeah. sit in the corner having a drink, and they're all going, hey, look at this. And they're taking their pictures, and it was, it was a sweet moment. So now I go over to the other side, Dick Wolf. And I'm there for a week. We're shooting a, a, a pilot on, uh, on Rookie Cops. Uh, and then I've got to go home. So I'm flying through Atlanta to L.A., and um, it was really particularly hot down in, in, uh, in St. Augustine. So I get to Atlanta and I get to the airport in Atlanta and uh, I'm at the Crown Delta Crown Lodge room and uh, there was a lovely man, the concierge, his name was Mr. Brown. I'll never forget it. And Mr. Brown, because I had some issues with my million mile thing, whatever, and he remembered. So I go away and I'm sitting having some oatmeal and all of a sudden my head starts to sweat uncontrollably. I mean, literally water's pouring down and all of a sudden I'm feeling this really bad in my neck and it felt like somebody was sticking two long wires, hot wires down my, my, my carotid arteries. And I'm like, this is not good. So I go over to Mr. Brown. I said, Mr. Brown, I know because I lived in Atlanta for many years at Turner. I said, would you mind calling the medics? He's like, is there a problem, sir? I said, no, Mr. Brown, I think I'm having a heart attack. He says, well, oh, of course, just a minute. So he gets on the phone, he calls, he says, they'll be here in about eight minutes. I'm like, um, okay. He says, is there anything else I can do for you? I said, yeah, Mr. Brown, would you mind terribly? Is someplace I could go? Because I don't want to fall down in front of all these people in spoiler day when I die. And I'm serious, but it's the politest conversation you see. He says, oh, yes, please come with me. Takes me to a back room. He says, would you like to sit? I said, no, would you mind terribly if I lied on the floor? No, not at all. Can I get you something? Glass of water would be nice. So we're like having this conversation, right? So finally, the, the medics burst in, and they have boom, and they like, this, you know, Mr. Beers, you're having a heart attack. We're taking you to the hospital. So they give me the ambulance. I get to the, the, to the hospital, uh, Crawford Long, and... Uh, is I'm rolling in, I've got a blood pressure cuff on, somebody's ripping my shirt off, somebody's yanking my pants off, 
I've got all these cables from the cuff, and it gets caught on one of those plugs that sit up above the ground on the floor. These, they're all these plugs, and it starts to pull me off of this. And they're pushing the gurney, and somebody's taking it. And finally, I yelled, "Cut!" <laughs> and everybody stops. It was like this great moment. It's like people. I go, "This is not." working for me <laughs> and they're like stop. I say, no all right can we back up and like literally so i'm producing my own things like all right all right now we all good now can we go now let's go so i stopped them. i cut the action now the funny thing is i go and i have the surgery i have two stents put in my lower coronary artery it was pretty serious that night i go to bed and i'm woke every two hours they wake me up to check on something but every two hours they wake me up and it's a doctor or a nurse and they're going um would you mind, could we take a picture with you, Remy? So they're handing me their phones. They're waking me every two hours so I can take a picture of them at the end of the bed holding my head. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm the photographer. I just had heart surgery and like, and every two hours. And the next day, I'll never forget, the head of security comes in. He says, Mr. Beers, we'll keep your name out of the papers. But um, your Emmy is disruptive. It has to go. So they kicked my Emmy out of the hospital. Remember, I've got my, my Emmy. It's in, it's in my bag. And it's sitting in in the in the crown room, and and the the and I'm laying on the floor, and they go, "This is we're taking you to the hospital." So as I'm going out, I realize that my bag is back there. So I grab the walls as we're going out the door. I go, "Wait, wait, 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 wait!" I go, "Miami, Miami." He goes, "What, sir?" I said, "Miami, Miami." He says, "No, sir, you're in Atlanta." And I go, "No, no, no, Miami." He says, "No, Atlanta." So we got this whole struggle. Is that Miami, Atlanta? It's finally they open the bag up and they see, oh, an Emmy. Good thing I said Miami. 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 No, you're in Atlanta. You couldn't have made that up. Peter Goober. He's a lovely guy. So he tried to buy your business twice, yeah? Yes, he did. Uh, you know, I just was with him. He's got a pickleball ball court at his house. A what? A pickleball court. It's like kind of like half tennis, you know, half like wiffle ball. It's a it's a funky little game that a lot of uh, older people are playing because it's fun and you play. Not like paddle tennis. Well, it's kind of like paddle tennis, but it's with a wiffle ball about this big. What's a wiffle ball? It's plastic. It's a thing you play like baseball, but the ball doesn't go very far. It's got big holes. Oh, okay. So pickleball. So he's got this tournament. He's got all these guys, and so anyway, I was just with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Incredible guy. You know, he ran Sony Studios. uh, Him and his partner uh, John Peters. Uh, they produced everything from you know Batman, Superman. They did all like superhero films in the '70s and the '80s, uh, and they were incredibly successful. By the way, they taught me something, two things that were really, really important. Goober and Peters, I remember Michael Apted had gotten the rights to do Gorillas in the Mist, uh, and Goober and Peters had also they had a dueling. There were dueling film crews trying to get their film launched first, and then the other one would get aced out. Well. Apted beat Goober and Peters out of the Gorillas and Mist, and he had cast uh, Sigourney Weaver, and the whole thing was cast. Except when they showed up in Rwanda to film, I'll never forget the story. Goes the, the head ranger says, "Oh, Mr. Apted, we are very happy to have you here, but um, if you want to film the Gorillas on the mountain, you must speak to Mr. Goober and Mr. Peters because they own the rights. So they <laughs> bought the rights to the mountain." So that's how Goober and Peters became the producers of Gorillas in the Mist because they couldn't get around it. They had it. So that's wow. the really so Those guys taught me, and they taught me one other thing. John Peters was really mercurial. He was uh, an angry guy, and Peter Goober is one lovely, calm guy you've ever seen. So, but they're a great duo. 
So they'd get into a meeting and it was a budget or something on a film and John Peters would go ballistic and he'd scream and yell and jump on a desk and he'd storm out of the executive's office. Door would slam and then Peter would sit there and he'd go, okay, he says, before the crazy guy comes back, can we figure this out? I didn't have a partner, so but I learned it from those guys. So I'd go into a meeting where I was fighting for a budget or for something and I would go ballistic, scream and yell and then I'd go like this, and i go, okay, before the crazy guy comes back in the room, which was me, and I scared the hell out of executives, but I learned it from those guys, and it was incredibly effective. Wow. So Goober tried to buy my company. He was my mentor early on uh, when I moved to L.A., and I would go and have breakfast with him every couple of months and just talk stuff. And after a couple of years, Peter says, um, you know, maybe we should take a look at your company and buy it. Now, at the time... I swear I would have sold them, you know, half the company for $500,000. Uh, and uh, Goober looks at all the numbers, and I hadn't really had a big hit show, but I had Deadliest Job in the World, which is the first precursor to Deadliest Catch. And he looks at it, he says, you know, yeah, you're doing really good. You got these shows on the air. He says, um, but I'm not going to give you any money. He says, I'll just give you a Mandalay, the name of my production company, so you can become Mandalay Originals. And for that, you owe me half the company. I'm like... I, I don't think I'm going to do that, Peter, but I appreciate it. So like four years go by, and same thing one day, Peter. Now I've got four series on the air. I've got three series of productions and all this stuff going on. And he says, you know, it's time maybe we should take a look again. Now at that time, I'd have sold it to him for $5 million, half of the company. Damn, if he doesn't do the same thing. He looks at it, he says, you can keep all the money you're making, but I'll give you Mandalay and give me half the company. And I'm like, Peter, I'm not going to do that. And ultimately, you know, as I said, I mean, I sold the company for about $140 million, and it would have been a hell of an investment for him at even half a million or at $5 million. But we laugh about it. I mean, mm. he, he's totally... He's done okay. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> I mean, that guy's like a billionaire, so it's not... A, and I think he enjoys the, you know, the success. And, you know, there's an old saying, it says, some of the best deals you ever made are ones you never made. Mm. And so that's kind of... That sometimes. Okay, let's talk about advice. There's a lot of people that that want to get into the kind of being on TV space for reasons that may be as simple as they just want to be famous or that they care very much about um, being able to develop skills and share skills through the airwaves. There's also people that wonder how money is made in your industry. They also hear, and a good example is here in Dubai at the moment, we've had the um, the, the Housewives of Dubai show that's been on uh, much to, and I, the, the success of it, no one was paid. No, they didn't make any money. They were paid. The 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 the, the talent, the talent didn't didn't get paid, and so they, I think it's quite mythical what goes on. I don't think people outside of your industry really know and understand. And so it's it's like with a podcast, people start a podcast off, and it's a great idea, but they don't have a business strategy around it. Yeah. So then they end up <clears throat> running out of, of of ideas and energy and drive and enthusiasm because it's not making them any money, and it's taking a lot of their time. But if you know what to do, you know, then you need to get sponsors to be able to pay for stuff and they pay for stuff, then everyone can keep going. And, you know, then you hopefully get bigger and bigger sponsors with bigger and bigger audiences. Kind of no brainer when you know, but when you don't know. Right. So let's say I'm a, I'm a youngster and I want to get into this <clears throat> world of entertainment. I'm not an actor, but I'm a presenter. Um, what was that dirtiest jobs guy? I forget his name. Mike Monroe. Yeah. So I want to I want to be a micro, or I want to make documentaries, and I and I, I, I want to do something worthy. How do I, how do I even start on that well, journey? See, there's a really interesting thing because there's a very different uh, 
the, between the way the British do television, for instance, where the kind of leaders and what the Americans do, you know, they look for presenters and people that want to be on TV and want to be, you know, want to be celebrities in essence. Uh, and the, in my business, um, they, we look for interesting people who are doing something that we want to film. You know what I mean? So in essence, you have to walk in now with a piece of talent who does something that's really unique, you know, and that basically is charismatic and you can surround them with, you know, stars. Uh, by the way, I went to see Michael Guerin uh, two days ago and to just to tell him he's ahead of uh, what EA, the TV here. OSN. Uh, Dubai TV. What do you mean? He's, he runs for the, works for the Emirate. He is the head of all entertainment. You know, it puts out all the grants that the government does. Oh, okay. But it's like, and he's 80 years old, and he's been, he was Les Moonves' boss. I mean, the guy has done a lot. He started Lorimar Pictures and really, really successful. So I wanted to kind of talk to him about the future here. And uh, he started the conversation with, well, I'm glad you came. He says, all right, I was late. He says, I just announced my retirement this morning. So it's like one of those, you know, when you're lame duck, you're going into a meeting, it's like, wow. And I'm literally in my head go, why am I? <laughs> Dude, you just announced you're retiring and you're leaving next Tuesday. Well, then, there we go. All right, so let's go back. So there's an interesting formula uh, in television, and I used to always, in my mind, it's, it works this way. With talent, your, your first season, you know, if they're making $2,500, $5,000 an episode, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of money, you know, to most people. And so in that season, they're just surprised to be on television. And now you've got it written in your contract that there's an automatic bump of 10 or 15%, whatever, for season two. So season two comes, they're more, the talent's more amazed about the fact that they're not just on television, but they've been picked up, so renewed. So they're on a hit TV series, mm -hmm. if you think about it. So they're just happy, not only they're on TV, but they're happy that they're on a hit TV series. Season three, it's always the money here. Season three is, now I got a hit TV show, you picked up a third season. Where's my money? Yeah. So all of a sudden you go from five thousand, six thousand dollars an episode, it goes to twenty five thousand. And in some places it goes to fifty thousand. Snooky on uh, on uh, Jersey Shore, mm -hmm. she broke the mold. The Snooky money and all the reality people back fifteen years ago when Snooky got was getting a hundred thousand dollars for an ensemble show, talent fee for a half hour, it was stunning. Me personally, and the way I always did it as an executive, I would recast every year a couple of people. Deadliest catch, I'd bring in a new boat. Because somebody wanted to try to hold me up, it's an ensemble show, goodbye. Thank you very much, I'll do what I can. But don't hold me up. I never let that happen because of that. But those guys were terrified and they give Snooky that money. All right, but so now you're season three, you're making $25,000. You'd think, mm, yeah, man, I'm killing it. No, 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 no. In their minds, most talent, it's like, mm, that's only half a loaf. I know there's more. And so that's third season, they steam, they steam through the whole season being upset because they want the rest of their money. Mm -hmm. So season four is the rest of their money. So if they're on their air, the air and it's a successful show and season four comes, now they're making 50000 a half hour or 50000 an hour, okay? But this is where it changes, and this is the interesting thing. Psychology changes. All of a sudden, also in season four, you realize that somebody's just offered you $50,000 to go open a fish market in Minnesota. You've been offered the opportunity to drive the pace car at the Indianapolis 500. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you realize the value of fame is worth more than money. Mm -hmm. And so now that currency takes over. So if you can get through a season four, through the rest of the run, you're golden. Because all of a sudden, they've realized that they've monetized it intellectually 
ego-wise, all of a sudden they're getting fulfilled on all angles. But even when you when you consider the guys, whether it's deadliest catch, ice road truckers, what they're getting paid to do a job anyway. Yeah. So they're getting their salary, whether you give them five dollars or five thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. The fact is, you're filming them doing their show. Now I'm sure doing their job. Now I'm sure it takes more time for them to do their job because you lot are around um, rather than just getting on with it. But whether they you pay them a lot of money or not, the fact is they're still getting paid from their job. What is interesting for me is. Do they get paid substantially more doing what they do, or are they actually getting paid substantially more four seasons in on the TV on the TV income? Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer it this way. I'll answer it this way. Um, I was doing a show called Black Gold. Yes, with one of oil rich oil guys. guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of them was getting married, and uh, he came to us and he said, um, "You know, I expect you to pay for my wedding." And we we're like, "We're we're not going to pay for your wedding." I mean, dude, you're going to get married with or without us being there. And he looked at me and he said, well, sir, he says, that's irrelevant to the fucking point, ain't it? <laughs> so you're either going to pay for it or I ain't going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and, and that's what it comes down to. It's irrelevant to the point, whether you're getting paid or not. What happens though, uh, from a production side, you don't hire individuals. Um, I hire the boats. And so we pay a certain fee for the boat. Uh, so the owner of the boat takes that money and he sends it out to, doles it out to the, the crew as he sees fit. So we're never having employment contracts with individuals. Mm -hmm. We employ the boat, and that price goes up significantly year over year. And with the Ice Road Truckers, it's the trucking company that you're paying? Well, if it's the company, but a lot of those trucks are different, though. They're individually owned. Oh, so we made deals with the trucker, and, and that show we made deals with the truckers. And... <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. So we're up in Yellowknife filming a special, a behind the scenes kind of like, you know, hey, and you know, how's this happen? And I'm doing interviews, I'm hosting it. And so Alex Debogorski, one of the truck drivers, big Polish guy, he comes up to mm. me and he's very upset that uh, they're staying in a hotel and he doesn't think the hotel that they're staying is as good as the hotel I'm staying in. And that we've disrespected them by giving them a lesser hotel. Now, I don't know anything about this. You know, I just you know, not them yet. I didn't book the t you know, I mean the production and stuff like that. But Alex is saying, and we're going live in like in two hours. And Alex says, not going on. What are you gonna do about it? I said, What do you want to do about it? He says, Well, let's let's take care of business. So there's two history executives there, uh, two women, and um Th Dolores Gavin and I forget who else. And uh I take my coat off and I hand it to her, I said, I'll be back in a little bit. I said, Where are you going? He said, I'm gonna go outside and get my ass kicked. She's like what are you talking about? I said, well, that we're going to go negotiate. Well, what does that mean? He says, he's going to kick my ass. So we go outside, boom, 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 gives me a couple of good shots, drops me on the ground. I say, we good? He says, yeah, okay, we're good. And there we go. I put my coat on and that's how you negotiate, you know, with truck drivers. <laughs> but wow. they're, they're looking at me like, this doesn't happen. This is television. And not in my business, man. I mean, these are truck drivers. These are real guys, you know. Who are your favorite characters from over the years? Well, you know, I'll, I'll take any character. When I'm casting, uh, you know, the one thing, I always remember a guy I met in um, in uh, Costa Rica, and I asked him a question about Pepe Figueres, who was the president of Costa Rica, who had abolished the army back in the 60s or 50s. And I asked him a question about Pepe Figueres. And he said to me, sir, he says, I don't know the answer to that question. And he goes, I, I, I don't pretend to know the answer to that question, but I'll tell you anyway. 
<laughs> and that's the guy you're looking for. You know, it doesn't matter. Just keep talking and tell me what you're thinking, you know? So I, I love those kind of characters that really kind of off the tongue, you know, a little crazy, you know, a little wild-eyed, a little dreaming, you know, they just always wishing for the next thing, you know? I mean, those are the kind of, the, the, those open souls. I mean, you know, Captain Phil, a loss of Phil mm -hmm. was really, really devastating to all of us. That show, incidentally, to, to edit that show, you know, I still get, it, it took us, Normally, we'd cut that show in a week. And that took us almost four weeks to cut because um, nobody could emotionally, we couldn't handle it. You know, I mean, Phil was the one that said, Look, I'm dying. And I know what he said, but just keep filming. You know, I want to put it on camera and I want to do it. And so we did, but it was like that, you know, it was tough. It was the hardest thing we ever did. But he was a guy that just, God, he just, he drank hard and partied hard and smoked like an animal. Just like, just everything. He just did everything. Just, you know, kind of had a death wish and, you know, you kind of knew it and he had his boys, but he was happier than, you know, but that was, uh, you know, th those complex, flawed heroes. He felt like my hero. Phil felt like my hero. He was, he was out of everybody. He was, if I was going to go spend time with someone out there, I'd want to be with him. One day those guys got dry. It wasn't the show. I think they talked about it once, but it was <laughs> Halloween and we're getting off the boat and they're drunk as shit. And, uh. One of the crew members falls off into the water, falls off the plank, and it's like freezing. Phil jumps in. He was wearing a Batman outfit. He jumps in the water, saves the guy. All I remember all night long, he says, he kept going, Batman saved my life. Batman saved my life. And uh, I always think of that because, you know, to me, that guy, you know, he had heart and soul. He had, you know, basically everything you wanted in a guy. He's like, man's mad, you know. Guys that... You know, it's, it's, I, and I don't want to get too political here, but you know, I, I think that what's happening in the world today, I'm, I'm kind of glad where I am where I am and maybe I'm a dinosaur, but you know, to me, I just think that, you know, I really enjoyed where men were men, you know, and they could be men and do what they did and not worry about, you know, being politically correct and saying all the appropriate things. And, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, the sexes. And I, I think that that blending, maybe there's some of it's good, but I kind of, you know, I'm old school. I don't want you to tell me not to be me. I don't want you to tell me how I need to think, how I need to behave, how I need to talk, how I need to address. I don't want you to tell me that. I, I, you don't have to like me. I don't have to be your friend, but don't tell me how to be. And don't, don't make me feel like I have to think before I speak. And I can't be spontaneous and honest and truthful. And this, how this whole woke world is changing is 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 for me horrible it's a waste of time and energy you know i mean look there are a lot of things that needed to change i get that and the equality between women and men and pay equality there's all this stuff absolutely you know and women's rights and fight for for everything but you know what all that stuff can work and, and it does work but you know don't don't just get in my brain and make me think somehow i just can no longer you know i i just watch it and i watch this kind of you know, emasculation of, of men. And it's like some, you know, people are going, you know, willingly through that portal. I particularly, I, I'm going to stay on this side and just be a dinosaur and enjoy my life. Gosh, never, never has a dinosaur been more desired than now. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I think I could probably talk to you for another hour about the future and what it holds. But for now, thank you so much. I appreciate Spencer. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Let's <laughs> go.